Well, could we just bow together, please? And it's good to see you gathered here already. Let's bow before the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we come before thee now in the name of of thy Son, our Saviour, of that one who came in the fullness of time to redeem his people, to save them from their sins. We thank thee for the finished work and for redemption through the blood, even the forgiveness of sin. Lord, we approach thee with that assurance that Christ has triumphed, that Christ has finished the work and risen from the dead. And we thank thee that he has ascended up to glory. There he ever lives to pray for us at thy right hand. We thank thee that we may gather here in that name as above all other names. We gather with the assurance of being heard, of being welcomed at thy heavenly throne. Lord, we commit this time to thee. Bless each one who will gather for this Bible study. We pray for each person here in the building and those online. We pray, Lord, that thy hand will be on us as we turn to the word, as we consider what thou wilt have us to see. Lord, bless thy truth to us, teach us through it. May it come with freshness and power. May it be written on our minds with great uh, freshness, with authority. May we hear from thee in this time together now. Lord, remember the gatherings in our Sunday school with the children then the Bible classes with our young people, we pray that all of them will have hearts for thee. We pray for that work of grace to be done in the souls of young men, young women, of little ones. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt come alongside and, and minister unto us by the Holy Spirit and grant us a sense of thy presence and thy nearness, even as we wait in thee. And so, Lord, we commit the whole day into thy hands. We pray that in the worship services later, Thou wilt attend with thy power, thou wilt be here in thy fullness, thou wilt come down among us and give help from heaven. O Lord, may there be great praise offered up to thee. May we magnify our God this day. Remember across our land, across our nation, O Lord, we pray that wherever people gather in the Saviour's name, with the book open, with a desire to magnify God, that there will be times of refreshing granted. O Lord, save souls this day and gather many into thy kingdom. Bless all of our missionaries. Remember them even now. And Lord, abide with us as we continue before thy throne of heavenly grace. We ask this all for Christ's sake, for his eternal praise. Amen and amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings I welcome you. It's good to see all who have gathered already. Uh, we welcome those online, and we pray that the Lord will bless every heart as we come around his word today. So 1 Kings chapter 16, and I want to read from the verse number 29. 1 Kings 16, and the verse 29, let's hear the word of God as we read from that verse. And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab the son of Omri to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk on the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians. 
and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. In his days did Hiel, the Bethelite, build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And we know that God will bless the reading of his word to, to all of our hearts. Now, in the three messages that I, or the three studies that I delivered to you, under this title of character studies, the focus was on John the Baptist. We noted that in the New Testament scriptures, John the Baptist is paralleled with Elijah. And we gave a little attention to these two men uh, as they stand in parallel in the Word of God. That parallel is based on the fact that both men stand out each in his day and time as men who ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. Scripture predicted that John would minister in the power and spirit of Elias or Elijah. So in that sense, they stand in tandem as men who exercise their ministries in the power of the Spirit of the living God. With that parallel in mind, I want therefore to give some attention to this illustrious character, Elijah, and seek to draw some lessons from his life and his ministry as we have them set before us in the Word of God here in 1 Kings and also in the opening part of 2 Kings. Now, Elijah's appearance, as verse 1 shows us here in chapter 17, was sudden, it was very startling. He's never mentioned prior to the moment in view in this text. Verse 1 here says, chapter 17, 1, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And so there's no mention of this man prior to this. And that means that he does appear very suddenly in the page of Scripture. There's no background given, no detail given, except what you have here in this verse. The statement is Elijah the Tishbite, or the phrase there, Elijah the Tishbite, the very opening words of the verse. Now, that word Tishbite is a reference to a place called Tishba, which was located on the eastern side of the River Jordan in the area of Gilead. That was part of the northern kingdom of Israel. This first verse tells us, that Elijah was of the inhabitants of Gilead. This sparsity of detail, for it is very sparse, is actually in keeping with Elijah's appearance on the page of Scripture and indeed throughout wherever we find him because 
he is a somewhat mysterious personality. He appeared, he disappeared, and then he reappeared. That happened quite often in this man's spiritual life and ministry and experience. All, of course, was as he was directed and as he was led by Almighty God. He just kept appearing, disappearing, and then reappearing. Now, while that's marked by mystery, we must understand that he was not some mythological character. Elijah was a real person. He was an authentic person, as the Word of God makes absolutely clear to us. His life, his identity, his ministry are established beyond any doubt. And actually, especially in the New Testament, along with what we have in the Old Testament, uh, beyond all doubt, he was a real man. He's actually mentioned 30 times in the New Testament. And very, very often by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as well as with some of the writers of the Gospels and also the Epistles. And the references to him in the New Testament are of such a nature as to underscore the importance that he occupied as a prophet of God in his generation. And so, while there's little about his background, why we don't know anything who his parents were or whatever else you care to mention in terms of those details, it does not mean that, as I say, he was some mythological character. He was real. He was a man of God who was raised up for his day and his time. Now, his importance is emphasized by the fact that he is one of the few miracle-working prophets of the Old Testament era. You find in the Scriptures uh, here concerning Elijah that there are seven distinct miracles that took place in the realm of his ministry. It's actually interesting to find that with his successor, Elisha, that there were 14 miracles performed in his days. And so there's that difference, seven in Elijah's day, 14 in Elisha's day. You see, I say this for this reason. That is that many people have this strange notion, in fact, a very erroneous notion, that the Bible is full of miracles. And that is not the case. Miracles are mentioned very sparsely, very, very uh, infrequently in the Word of God. And that's, that's a fact that we should notice. If you take the Old Testament, there were miracles in the days of Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha. Some a little later on in the realm of other men of God or prophets. But that's it. And Anybody who tells you the Bible's full of miracles, therefore we should expect miracles today of the same kind as you have in the Bible, are completely wrong in what they say or what they teach. So we find that there were miracles in his day and his successor's day, Elisha. And by means of those miracles that are referred to in the times of their ministries, the message that Elisha or Elijah and then Elisha brought was marked by being of divine authority and reality. That's the real reason why any miracles were ever wrought. It was to show that what these men were saying and teaching was actually the Word of God. Now, that was wholly essential in the times of, of Elijah, that there would be some miracles, because the spiritual life of the nation, indeed the moral life of the nation of Israel, had plummeted. 
And so in those days, those levels, spiritual life, moral life, were at a very, very low level. And therefore God raised up Elijah then, Elisha, and through them he showed that he was God. That was Elijah's great burden to prove that the God of Israel is the only true God, the only living God. And so God put a stump upon these men by enabling them to perform these particular miracles of which we read. Now, as I've noted with you, Elijah appeared and he ministered at a time of great spiritual decline. And that fact is beyond doubt. It's fully verified by what we read, even what I've brought to you today in the Bible reading. And this, of course, is then verified by uh, the whole context of Elijah's life and all that he, he did. There was great spiritual decline. There was a need for God to move. I want just to focus today in this first study on Elijah on the time of his appearance, or even the times of his appearance. What kind of times they were. I want to sum it up in three ways. Number one, this was a time of deep darkness. Time of deep darkness. Elijah appeared, or came on the scene, about 60 years after Solomon's death. And at the time of Solomon's death, or just after his death, there was a division of Israel into two parts. And you should be familiar with that because it's a very well-known fact of the Old Testament's history regarding that era just after the death of Solomon. There was a division of the kingdom into the northern and the southern parts of that kingdom. There were ten tribes in the north, and the capital was based in the city of Samaria. There were two tribes in the south, and the capital in the south was, of course, the city of Jerusalem. Now, while there was a better spiritual and moral level in the south in the days of Elijah or Elisha, the northern kingdom was covered by deep darkness. That darkness had descended over a period from the reign of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. If you look there at chapter 16, verse 31, that king is mentioned. It says there, it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. It goes on to speak then of what Ahab did. He took Jezebel to be his wife. And what a disastrous step that was. But Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is mentioned there. He is one of the early kings of the northern kingdom. In fact, he's the first of them. He's referred to as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, I dealt with that when I did the study in the Minor Prophets, we saw this man uh, mentioned in some of those studies, or we had him mentioned as we went through those studies in the Minor Prophets. But the darkness really descended over the whole period from the time that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, began to reign, which was just after the death of Solomon. And so when it came to Elijah's day, the darkness was centered or crystallized in this man Ahab, in what he was as a person, and in how he reigned. And, of course, along with him there was his wicked wife Jezebel. Jezebel stands out in the Bible as a person. She was a real person, we may also say, and she certainly was, as a person who was deeply wicked and greatly engrossed in the worship of Baal. 
But the, the Lord takes Jezebel in the Bible and he holds her up as a kind of a symbol of false religion, of apostate churches, and so on. This is what we find the whole way through the Word of God. So Ahab and Jezebel are now reigning when Elijah appears on the scene. Together, these two people had brought the northern kingdom of Israel into the very depths of sin. That's what I mean by a time of great darkness. It was spiritual darkness. It was moral darkness. It had come about because of those who were reigning over Israel at this time as well as over those 60 years from the time of Solomon's death. Look at Ahab's personal apostasy. Look back into chapter 16 at verse number 30. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Now that includes all those kings of Israel right back to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. From the time of the division of the kingdom just after Solomon's death, beginning with that Jeroboam, there had been seven kings of Israel. All of them were wicked men. There never was a good king in the northern kingdom at all after the kingdom was divided. They were all ungodly. They were all immoral. They were all spiritually dark. And so Ahab brings us to the epitome, as far as this time is concerned, of these evil kings who appeared and who reigned in those 60 years. And then we come to Ahab. And in Ahab, wickedness came to a peak. We see it there in chapter 30. Just notice those words again. He did evil, sorry, chapter 16, verse 30. He did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Look at uh, verse 33. Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel. That were before him. We should notice something here, men and women, that there was a pattern that began with Jeroboam and it kept developing and growing and increasing through all the different reigns over those 60 years. None of them reigned very long, really. Some of them just a day or two, some a few months, some a number of years. But we find that this departure kept developing. In other words, when a wicked line is established. It continues on and it grows, it develops. When apostasy comes in, it is hard to counteract. It's difficult to reverse it. And as far as the northern kingdom of Israel is concerned, it never was reversed. And so eventually the northern kingdom was carried away into captivity. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted a bit longer and then also went into a captivity for their sin and for their apostasy. And so Ahab surpassed everybody before him in personal apostasy from God. The Bible speaks to us about wickedness coming to a peak, coming to a fullness. We see that in Ahab's case. Wickedness in this man's life was the epitome of all the wickedness that had come before him and other men. It kept rising and rising and rising to an awful level, and it reached its peak in Ahab. In Genesis 15 and verse 16, you read something there that's important. 
Uh, just a, a line I want you to notice, Genesis fifteen sixteen. it says, But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, that is Israel would come out of Egypt, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Notice those words. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. You see, sometimes we ask, why do the wicked prosper? Why do they keep going on and on and this man comes along and he's wicked. Somebody else comes along and he's worse. And we're seeing in our own day and time. We're seeing the levels of wickedness across the earth rising and rising and rising. And we wonder why. And the answer is, God's working out his program. And not yet have we come to the moment to take these words when the iniquity of evil men has come to the full. We haven't arrived there yet. But notice those words. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. It took 400 years actually for what the Lord speaks of in Genesis 15 verse 16 to be fulfilled. It was fulfilled at the time of Pharaoh. Because this is what this is all about. It's Israel going down into Egypt. They're there under, eventually under the bondage of Pharaoh, the, the final Pharaoh as far as that period is concerned. And it was in his day that the iniquity of the Amorites, the word Amorites is a kind of a general term for heathen people in that part of the world. And then it came to the fullness that God had predicted. So you notice those words. Those are very important words in Genesis 15 and 16. Look at Daniel 8 verse 23. I'm just showing you verses here that tie in with what we're noticing about Ahab. He, in his ways, was the culmination of evil. And we find the Word of God is full of this in terms of references. Daniel 8, 23. It says, In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty. Daniel 8, 23, 24. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. That simply means that the power of this king who's in view here is not his own power, it is satanic power. And satanic power is going to, as it says here, develop and grow terribly. So, verse 24, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Who are the mighty and the holy people? Who are they who are going to be destroyed by this king? Well, the king here is Antichrist. In Daniel 8, 23-24. And we find that in his days, transgressions, or sorry, transgressors will come to the full. We think it's bad now. Don't want to discourage you. It's going to get worse. Just as sin developed in Ahab's life to a peak and all those had come before him had been the forerunners of all that development of evil, so toward the end, the, the wickedness of men will rise and rise and rise. There are some who teach that there's going to be a golden age before the Lord comes. That's what's called the post-millennial view of things. 
that the world will get better and better and better. The world will be converted to God. No, my friend, it won't. It's going to get worse and worse according to the Scriptures. And so, here's a person. If you turn now to 2 Thessalonians 2, you find a mention by Paul in this passage, which I've often read with you and looked at with you in many messages. But just read it again, 2 Thessalonians 2 and the verse number 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Here is iniquity reaching its peak, and then the Lord will come. That's what it goes on to say there. Tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the Lord will destroy this man, the Antichrist, with the brightness of his coming. Now, whoever the Antichrist may be, that's not the issue today. That's not the matter I'm dealing with. I'm just showing you that from Ahab we learn this lesson that wickedness keeps rising and rising and rising. The only thing that will ever change that is revival and the moving of God. You know, you, you, we would love Parliament to, to reverse those laws they have passed, wouldn't we? How will that happen? If it's going to happen, how would it happen? When God moves by his Spirit among the populace of the nation and saves so many people that they'll then go out and vote and they'll vote those wretches out and vote good men in. That's the only way that will ever happen. And that's what we should keep praying for. A local revival at least, that God would move, God would intervene. But I'm just showing you folks, and it needs to be recognized by us all, that Ahab's personal apostasy is actually a forerunner of what we see in generation after generation down through history, even into our own days. So you have this matter of a time of deep darkness and Ahab is personal apostasy. But then look at his personal amalgamation. Go back to 1 Kings 16 and look again at verse 31. It says, It came to pass, 1 Kings 16, 31, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk on the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And that language means that Ahab was a man who... who was defiant. He wanted to do the worst that he could possibly do. And it was a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. It didn't cost him a thought. He had no compunction about it. He had no uh, qualms of conscience about it. It was just something that he loved to do. That's what it means. And then it goes on to say this. He took to wife Jezebel the daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him, reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria, made a grove, did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. He married Jezebel, and that was like the opening of the floodgates. He was bad before that, but his wife made him worse. The Bible says 
He who finds a wife finds a good thing. But the point is, she has to be a good woman. Or you haven't found a good thing. You young men pay heed to that. Uh, That's not a blanket statement about marriage. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. She has to be a good woman, a godly woman. And Ahab certainly did not marry a godly woman. He married an abomination of a woman. A woman who took him down and down. Whatever way you want to put it. The rising of sin or the, the depths of sin. It's all the same thing in the final analysis. Jezebel was an idolater. He married Jezebel. He formed an amalgamation in that marriage between his own personal apostasy from God For he was an Israelite. Outwardly he belonged to a covenant people. He would have been circumcised. He had all these things in his background. But he apostatized from God. And then he married an idolater. A pagan and a heathen. An ardent Baal worshiper. What you see there is apostasy and paganism amalgamated in a marriage union. And that led to unprecedented rebellion against God within Israel. And it's very, very obvious from the story of Ahab, from the account that God gives us, that Jezebel dominated the union. I know that we make jokes and we can be humorous about the wife ruling and all that stuff, but this was no joke. This woman was the one who was really ruling. Ahab, from this point on, is a tool in her hand as she pursues the goal of leading Israel farther and farther away from the Lord. She dominated this amalgamation. Men and women, that's another preview of the end time. When apostate Christendom will be joined with false religion and form the final and the hoary system of Babylonianism in its in the last days. That's where we are headed. The Bible's clear on that. We see uh, all the time the formation of the one world church. Uh, the ecumenical movement. Uh, the world council of churches. All of these bodies have one common goal. That is to bring about a, a, a religion, a worldwide religion a final church of, of, uh, of many, many religions brought together. That is the goal. That is what's happening as I speak to you right now. It is now, used to be called ecumenism. I've just used the word ecumenical, and you've heard the word ecumenism many a time. The Bible actually uses the word in a good sense. It simply means one world. But the word has been hijacked by apostate religion to suit their agenda. And so they gladly use the term, the phrase ecumenical movement, or the word ecumenism, to, to dress up what they're really doing, to make it look attractive and, and, and have people deceived by it all. This is what is going on. And so this is going to keep on developing down through history ahead of us until we get right to the very end and the one world church will come into being. I can only mention that briefly here today. What I'm showing you is this is a time of deep darkness in Ahab's day. Whenever Elijah appeared, things have sunk to an awful level 
through Ahab's personal apostasy, through that personal amalgamation with this woman Jezebel, and this is a preview of what will happen toward the end. So then we have another thought here. Not only was it a time of deep darkness, it was a time of deep defiance. The two go together. When people go into spiritual darkness, they become very defiant of God. And we see this at the end of chapter 16 here, 1 Kings 16. Look at verse 34. In his days, that's the days of Ahab, did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, what is all this? I've got to trace this out. Turn, please, to Joshua 6, because Joshua's re- referred to there in that verse I just read. And so turn to Joshua 6 and look at verse 26. It says, Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof on his firstborn, and on his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. So Joshua delivered a prophecy at this stage here in Joshua 6, 26. They have just destroyed Jericho. Jericho has been razed to the ground. When the Israelites went across Jordan, came into the land of promise, Jericho stood in their way, but through God's miraculous power, Jericho was destroyed. And God pronounced a curse on anyone who would set out to rebuild Jericho. And the point is that no one dared to do that until the days of Ahab. And then there came along a man who's mentioned here, we're going to look at in a moment, and he, built, he rebuilt Jericho in defiance of God's injunctions. Now this is very enlightening, very much something to notice. Notice the man's name, this time of deep defiance. It says in verse 34 here, In his days did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. Hiel, there's his name. You know what that name means? My God is living. Or my God is alive. What a classic example you have here of what the Bible says in the New Testament in Revelation 3 verse 1 about that particular church that's mentioned there that they had a name to live but they were dead. And that's what you find with Hiel. His name means my God is living. You see, Baal worship actually taught that Jehovah was dead. That was the great thrust of the the religion of Baal. Jehovah has died. Baal is now reigning. And remember, we've just read in verse 32 there a little while ago about the altar to Baal and the worship of Baal. The land of Israel is now overrun with Baal worship. And Baal worshippers are taught to believe that Jehovah was dead. Do you know what happened in chapter 19 of this book? The great challenge on Mount Carmel when Ahah or when Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal and his, his challenge was, the God that answers by fire, let him be God. 
And you say they were teaching all the time that Jehovah is dead. And therefore, when when Elijah issued that challenge, he would have been laughed at by those who were there because they believed that God was dead. Do you know that liberals have written, a certain liberal modernist has written a book called God is Dead. There's the very same thing going on in our day and time. God's dead. It's all old-fashioned now. That's all in the past. God's dead. No longer around. We're in charge. We're in control. That's how men are living today. This man, Hiel, my God is living, his name means, but the point is what he was doing here contradicted the meaning of his name. Because the God who, who had said through Joshua not to rebuild Jericho is the God, the true God, whom Hiel is defying. As he rebuilds Jericho. And the same thing is going on. Liberals and humanists and modernists today defy God in pursuance of their damnable heresies and their dangerous deceits. And as they pursue their false religions and their ungodly lifestyles and their immoral behavior and they seek to pull society down and down and down into the depths of great wickedness, They're proclaiming all the time God is dead. But you see, my dear friend, apostasy thrives only among those who once were professors of Christianity. You don't have apostasy anywhere else in real terms except among those who used to be or those who claim to be worshippers of the true God and belong to Protestant churches. And then as time goes by, they turn away from their confessions, their creeds, their doctrines, and they abandon it. And they're essentially saying, God is dead now. And all the while, they're among those in Christendom who supposedly believe that God is the living God. Do you see how the Bible's so up to date? So, There is his name, Hiel, my God is living. What a lesson we have there. But look at where he lived, his location. Tells us here in 1 Kings 16, in that verse 34, he was a Bethelite. So where was he from? He was from Bethel. What does Bethel mean? The house of God. And so here's a man whose name means my God is living, and he's from a place that means the house of God. But we find here that Bethel, which was associated so intimately with the true God and the living God, had produced a person who is the captain of defiance against God. That's the tragedy of apostasy. They say they belong to the house of God, they belong to the Christian church. And I want to stress that. Apostates today are within professing Christendom. They're not outside of it. Outside of it, you've got heathenism and paganism. That never espouse God, unless we go away back to the very beginning of humanity. But heathenism and paganism are religions of many, many forms that have never worshipped the true God. But these fellows who lead apostasy today come out of churches and bodies that profess to be the house of God. But they are the champions of apostasy now. 
you turn to 2 Kings 2, verse 23, just to give you another reference here to Bethel that's interesting. 2 Kings 2, 23, it says, And he went up from thence unto Bethel, that is, Elisha. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city, that is, out of Bethel and mocked them. And let me just comment on that. The term there, little children, doesn't mean toddlers. It's actually a reference to uh, those in uh, teenage years, 20-year-old young people. That's what the reference is to. It's not little children in the sense that we use the word or the phrase today. Anyhow, there came forth little children out of the city, out of Bethel, and mocked him, and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them, and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood, and tear forty and two children of them. This all happened at Bethel. It was a center of defiance of God. These young people come out of the city, and they mock Elisha. Now, it seems he was bald. So learn from this not to mock bald-headed men. Don't do that. That's what those young people did. And the bald-headed man turned back and he cursed them. And they came to an awful end. Now, that's all marked by the supernatural. But the point is, you see here, the rising generation in Bethel, and they have no regard for God's man or God's truth. They mock. And they go into destruction. That's where Hiel lived. He was from Bethel. And so what a time of, of, of deep defiance there was, as well as deep darkness, when Ahab appeared in the scene. I want to close by saying this. It would have been a time of deep despair. You see, there was a remnant in Israel at this time. We learn that from, I'll just show it to you. Turn to 1 Kings 19, and verse 18. And this is the encouraging thing in this awful scene here of deep darkness and deep defiance. And there was deep despair among the, the Lord's people, but there was a remnant. First Kings 19, 18, God tells Elijah, I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed on to Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. So there were people in Israel still who worship the true God. There's a remnant, the Lord says. They haven't bowed to Baal. And so there was a remnant. Now, here's the point I'm making. Naturally, that remnant would have felt the pressures of the times in which they lived and served God. And we may assume even that this faithful band of 7,000 people must have, at times at least, experienced deep despair. They must have said to themselves, are we at the point where true religion is going to be stamped out altogether? But then you see, it was right then that Elijah appeared. So it was a time of deep darkness and deep defiance of God and even deep despair. We believe that. Elijah or Ahab and Jezebel have slain hundreds of prophets of God. 
Elijah actually felt he was the only one left. Now, he made a mistake there. We can, we, we can get very isolated and introverted and think we're the only one left. But God says, no, I have 7,000. So, this would have been their thought. Are we at the stage where it's all over? And then suddenly, a man of God appeared on the scene. He was God's man, and he was, he was the right man, and he came at the right time. When things were so dark, defiant, and even full of despair. He was a prepared man. You see, that's part of the whole reason why Elijah appeared on the scene so suddenly. It doesn't mean that that's when he was converted. No, it means that for whatever length of time God had been preparing this man. Remember I showed you, the reading there shows you in 17 verse 1 that he was from the inhabitants of Gilead. I mentioned Gilead and uh, in that region of Gilead there was this place called Tishba and he was a Tishbite. But Gilead was a mountainous area. It was very rugged. It was very isolated in itself. And that's where Elijah had been. But in that isolated region, unknown to anybody, God was preparing Elijah to suddenly stand before Ahab and tell him the word of God. Ah, my dear friend, do not despair. Because God will never leave himself without a witness. God will never leave himself without preachers. God will never leave himself without those who will come onto the stage of time and stand up for his name and for his truth. We see it here in Elijah. He was a prepared man. God is preparing him all the time behind the scenes. And when his time came, then Elijah appeared openly and publicly before Ahab at least at this stage and brought the word of God will be. Looking at that again. So, in a time of deep despair, God had a prepared man. Pray for that. Pray for that. Pray that among our little boys, among our youths, among our young men in this congregation, the Lord will be preparing men for future ministry preparing girls and young ladies to go to the mission field, preparing people for Sunday school teaching and so on, all the different realms and regions of the work of God that need personnel. We should be praying for this all the time, that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers. The Lord tells us to pray that, and we must pray that. And then not only was a prepared man, he was a pioneering man. He had a difficult task. And that's putting it very, very lightly, in a sense. It was an enormous task. Seeking to lay a foundation again in a nation devastated by Baal worship and apostasy from God. Encountering fierce opposition from Ahab and Jezebel and the hundreds of false prophets who were still there. But you know, Elijah prevailed. He pioneered, he labored, he worked, and God rewarded his labor. I only can mention this in closing. If you turn quickly into 2 Kings chapter 2, look at verse number 7, 2 Kings 2 and verse number 7. It says, 50 men of the sons of the prophets. Now just follow through with me. 
That's chapter 2, verse 7. Notice a reference to the sons of the prophets. Then chapter 4, verse 1. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets. Chapter 6, verse 1. You read something similar. It says, and the sons of the prophets. Who are these sons of the prophets? Are they Elijah's sons, biologically speaking? Are they Elisha's sons? No, in that biological sense. No, they are young men, a class of young men in Israel called the sons of the prophets. What is going on here? Running alongside the apostasy and the departure from God, the Lord was at work. The Lord had an Elijah. The Lord had an Elisha. And the Lord blessed those two men. And they saw colleges established. They saw schools of training set up. That's what this reference is all about. Young men in training now for the prophetic ministry. And so, in such a time of darkness and defiance and even despair, God was at work. God always uses men. He doesn't send angels now anymore. He doesn't, he's not among us himself as the Lord was on this earth. No. He takes men and he makes them as preachers and as ministers and he will never be without that. But he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so, while there's much here that is very dark and marked by defiance and even despair, yet there's a gleam of light in the story of Elijah. And we'll see more about that. But we have the proof here that he pioneered and he saw young men raised up and they were trained and schooled in the ways of God and they went forth to minister in the land. Let us bow in prayer. Our time is gone and we will commit our way to the Lord just now. And our Father in heaven, we thank thee for what we are taught through this man Elijah, what we see of the movings of God and the operations of God. O Lord, we pray that thou wilt encourage our hearts this day in dark and wicked times and help us, O Lord, to uh, seek thee and, and wait on thee. And O Lord, may we see young men been raised up. May we see the Lord moving and working in a powerful manner even though it is a day of darkness and defiance of thee, and the hearts of God's people would get despairing at times. O oh Lord, may we lift up our eyes, may we look away to thee, the head of the church, the one who is the saviour of the body, and may you move in all your power, and may you work for thy glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, for Christ's sake. Amen.